One of the things that we are about as a church, and I think, you know, really every church is about is, is following Jesus, right? I mean, that's what he's called us to do. And one of the ways we've been doing that is by being rooted in uh, Matthew's gospel on and off for the past few years. The reason uh, we do that is because we're, we're trying to just get the dust off of Jesus' feet, follow him around as, as we um, go through his life and, and see what it is he's, he, uh, he's teaching and watch and, and listen to what it is he's doing. And there's part of me that looks at this and thinks, well, who would not want to follow Jesus? Everywhere he goes, he's proclaiming good news, he restores health, he casts out evil, he includes the outsiders, he proclaims truth and he expresses love. Matthew has been showing us all along that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes and longings of Israel and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our future hopes and longings as well. Who wouldn't want to follow Jesus, right? So why don't more people follow Jesus? And why do those of us who say we follow Jesus often follow at an arm's length or a distance? Why is he so controversial? I think to put the matter simply, it's because Jesus is about healing us, and healing hurts. Healing is uncomfortable. A few weeks ago, I'm eating leftover pizza, I bite into a piece of tasty Italian sausage, and one of those seasoning seeds hits my second to last molar just right. Almost put me on the floor. The pain was so bad. I cracked my tooth in three places going down to the gum line, and it was late on a Friday. So I didn't go to the dentist, I couldn't go Saturday or Sunday, and let me tell you this, by Monday I had learned to eat over here, to put my mouth over on the side of my tooth so no cold air would get on it, I could kind of drink this way, and I got to thinking, maybe I could just live my, my, my life like this, because who wants to go to the dentist? The first thing they're going to do is shoot it with the air to say, does that hurt? Of course it hurts, and then they're going to drill it and shoot it up with needles, and I got to thinking maybe I would just be better off living partly broken. Of course, by now I've gone to the dentist and have a temporary crown on. Tuesday I get my real one. So I'm pretty much back to whole again. But there's some areas in our life that are more sensitive than others. We would all love to be made whole instantly. We'd all love to wake up one morning and just have everything be okay. Whatever hurt us in our past be taken away. Whatever stumbling blocks and emotional issues we have in the future just be cleared out for us. I would love to wake up like that. I would love to have every person wake up tomorrow uh, to be able to love perfectly and to be able to believe that they are perfectly loved. I'd love to wake up and know that tomorrow every man, woman, and child would be free of disease, free of depression, free of sin, free of conflict. We want those quick fixes because we want to be healed, which is a good want. We also want it because we don't like the process. My kids are into picking up rocks outside and paving stones because they want to see what lives underneath them. So what happens when you lift up a paving stone, the sunlight shines in, and you get, first of all, the spiders are the fastest, they go, and then the pill bugs, they kind of scurry about, um, and then the millipedes and centipedes, they kind of do their thing, and the slugs are like, oh, dang, you caught me. And, you know, so everyone's got, but nobody likes to be exposed. In fact, this poor centipede yesterday, I was just doing it for the sermon illustration, too, he just was like, or she, uh, figure eight, it was like, where, where do I go, where do I go, where do I go, where do I go? He never escaped. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> Jesus is in the business 
of lifting up the stones that cover our hearts and letting the sunshine of his truth penetrate those things. He exposes those things. Because Jesus is not a genie. He's more like a spiritual surgeon. And when you go into surgery, you better hope the surgeon has a good bright light on the area that, that they're working on, right? And, and that's the part that sometimes hurts the most is that I got areas, you've got areas that you just want to keep buttoned up, keep the, the light away from, but Jesus wants to expose those things. And only when they're exposed and he gets in there and does his work can we be fully and completely healed. Jesus has a knack of touching on and exposing those areas that in our culture, in our, my personal life, I like to keep personal and I don't like exposed. And so what does Jesus talk about in things like the Sermon on the Mount? Let's talk about your anger problem. Let's talk about your lust problem. Let's talk about fidelity and keeping your word and not always trying to get a leg up on the competition. Let's talk about fidelity in marriage. Let's talk about money. These are the kinds of things that Jesus talks about. And tonight we're going to see Jesus talking about marriage, divorce, and different ways of conceiving singleness or the non-sexual celibate uh, lifestyle. Stand with me please as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Jesus has just taught in the Galilee region um, and on, on forgiveness in particular. And we pick up the story. It says, When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no person separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship between a man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not all people can accept this statement, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who have been born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by other people, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He then who is able to accept this teaching, let him accept it. Oh Lord, uh, help us. Help us to hear what you're saying. Lord, we... I, we confess that even as we come to this text, it's charged with all kinds of narrative and stories and examples and, and hypotheticals. We want to cut off what you're saying before you even get there. Um, and I pray that you would give us open hearts and open minds. That by your grace, you would uh, forgive missteps on my part 
as I seek to interpret this most faithfully. Lord, may your grace fall on us and may we hear truly your words. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus, the master healer, was also the master exposer of truth. Everywhere he goes, he shines light and exposes things for what they really are and people for who they really are. He only does this for the purpose of healing and making us whole. He has no desire to sit there and make people feel bad or to call them out and then walk away. Jesus is the bringer of light and truth for the purpose of healing. And in the first century when he's doing this teaching, just like today, there are people who do not want to hear the truth, the light. Many of the Pharisees were in the camp of not wanting to be messed with. They had positional authority. They had a large following of people uh, who followed them and adored them for their strict rules and their traditions. They thought by following the Pharisees, they were getting somewhere with God. And here comes Jesus challenging many of the assumptions and teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. In current politics, for example, uh, if you want to... uh, smear someone. You could do a smear campaign on YouTube or Vimeo. You never really even have to meet face to face. You just bring up some kind of weird background story or you spin the truth a little bit and you can say bad things about other people. In Jesus' day, the way that you brought about discrediting someone was through a public shaming. And the way this would happen is in the public market or uh, within a crowd of people, you would call someone out. And what you would do is try and challenge their competency challenge their authority. You would try and ask them questions to make them look ridiculous in front of people, which would then lower their street cred. This is how the Pharisees did it. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? They're trying to trick him here. And you have to appreciate that in the first century, marriage and divorce were not taken as lightly as unfortunately they are uh, in much of the Western world, like our culture. Marriage and family were viewed in the first century, not just in the Jewish world, but in the Roman world too. Marriage and family were viewed as the foundational building block of culture, of society, of politics, of economics. Caesar actually had rules that uh, governing marriages and families because that was such an important part of the Roman structure. They weren't all good rules, I'm not saying that, but they were rules nonetheless. So when the Pharisees get Jesus in public and they start talking about an issue having to do with marriage and divorce, they're not just talking about an issue, they're talking about one of the issues. And if Jesus is made to look incompetent or foolish or unbiblical in front of the crowds on this issue, it would greatly discredit him. And that was their goal. The issue at hand was not whether God allowed people to divorce. That actually was not disputed. And most people think Jesus did not dispute that either. In fact, Exodus 21, among other texts, talks about uh, how God allows divorce for material neglect, not providing for your spouse. 
uh, sexual infidelity, withholding conjugal rights from each other for extended periods of time, and emotional neglect, which would be public shaming, verbal, physical abuse to one another, demeaning each other in front of others. Now, what the Pharisees wanted to know wasn't about whether or not divorce was legal, because that was a no-brainer uh, in the Jewish mind. What, he, what they wanted to know is, was divorce for any reason allowed? And what they're bringing up is a debate between two popular rabbis at the time. There's the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. On the one hand, the rabbi Shammai taught that divorce was only legal on those biblical grounds of neglect and adultery public shaming, sexual immorality. On the other hand was Hillel, who taught that you could divorce your wife for any reason. Literally, these are things that are written down from records in the first century. If she's too old, if she burned dinner, if she did not do the chores that you lay out for her. It was literally called an any-cause divorce. Now, think about this. In a society like that one, where men had the vote, women didn't, where men basically ruled society, whose view do you think was most popular? Hello! Of course! So you're saying, I have the right to do whatever I want in my marriage. Now the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus because they know that he is probably not going to side with Hillel. He's going to say, undoubtedly, no, uh, any cause divorce is not okay. And then they think they've got him. Because their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 is this. They think that through Moses, God commands people that when they divorce, to just give the wife a certificate of divorce and everything's good. They think that Jesus is not following scripture. Now knowing their trickery, Jesus answers their question and more. Moses receives revelation from God and writes that Deuteronomy 24 passage. Jesus goes behind Moses. He goes back in time behind Israel. He goes back in time further behind the patriarchs. He goes back in time further beyond original sin, the first rebellion of mankind. He goes back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 for the original intent of God's design for humanity before sin wrecked our lives. Have you not heard? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. When you become one flesh, if you split up after that, you become a fraction. That's the point. Once you become one, there's a problem. You'll always lose something if you break up after that. God's original design between, is marriage between men and women that is lifelong. Marriage that is a partnership for the purpose of reflecting God's goodness and loving kindness to the whole creation. A partnership between a husband and a wife is to carry out God's call to steward the earth and to reflect His rule over all created things. The Pharisees stick to their plan of trying to trick Jesus. So, 
you can't divorce your wife for any reason? Then why did Moses command her or command us to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? In other words, in public, the Pharisees are saying, why are you teaching something different than the great prophet Moses? And Jesus replies, hey, he didn't say hey, I would, hey, it's for your hardness of heart that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it's not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Notice that the Pharisees had tweaked Moses' words. He didn't command divorce. He permitted it. And Jesus says he permitted it because of human hardness of heart. In the beginning, God's original plan, divorce was not an option. But because of our rebellion and brokenness, and particularly because of our hardness of heart, God allows divorce. Because sometimes that's the lesser of two evils in an abusive situation, in a hardened situation. We need to sit with the severity of Jesus' words for a moment, to feel their gravity, the permanency, the sacred nature of the marriage relationship. The prophets, Malachi in particular, speak of God's hatred of this hardness of hearts that leads us to leave the spouse of our, of our youth or whenever you got married. And I think we take that seriously, we realize, oh man, this is a serious endeavor. Getting married, if you're not married yet and you're thinking about it, it's a serious endeavor. If you are already married... It, you feel that gravity and know that we need God's help to remain in this in a healthy way. And now I want to speak a word of grace. We have to recognize that when Jesus teaches these amazingly uh, stark teachings, he uses strong language to get his point across. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said... Uh, you shall not commit murder, but whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court, right? And Jesus says, uh-uh. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother or sister is guilty before the court. Whoever says you uh, good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. When's the last time you were in prison for being angry with someone? We don't, we don't, we don't do that. I would be in prison right now if, that, if someone's anger would send me to prison. When's the last time you plucked out an eye or chopped off a limb because you lusted after someone else? We don't, we don't teach that that is actually what Jesus is saying. What do we teach? That he is saying through hyperbole, do whatever it takes to heal so that you're not objectifying men and women who are made in God's image. Do whatever it takes to be reconciled with your brother and sister. And in a similar way, do whatever it takes to make this God-created covenant of marriage work. So is Jesus saying... Never divorce, and if you do, you are damned. 
I've seen this passage abused firsthand and heard many more stories secondhand that make my skin crawl. I have heard of uh, women endure years of physical abuse, having gone to the church where they were a part of, and heard from their pastor, no, you need to stick this out and make this work. It's the biblical thing to do. Abuse isn't one of the things that Jesus said. I have heard of children staying in uh, sexually abusive, physically abusive, emotionally abusive uh, households because the husband or wife thought they couldn't get a divorce in God's eyes. When someone breaks their covenant of marriage through abuse, infidelity, neglect, they have actually de facto divorced their spouse. They've split the family. Jesus says that healing and forgiveness are the first option. It's no accident that Matthew places this teaching of Jesus directly after Matthew 18, in which he ends that chapter on forgiveness. Chapter 18, Jesus is talking about forgiveness. Peter comes up says, Master, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister when they sin against me? Up to seven times? Jesus says, no, Peter, not up to seven times, up to 77 times, which the two sevens are kind of Old Testament, or, uh, biblical code for infinitely, infinitely. As long as the person comes and repents, keep on forgiving. In other words, as long as your brother or sister repents of their sin toward you, you are to forgive them. Why? Because that is how God is with you. And you were made in God's image. And that's how it should be. Jesus is not naive. He unashamedly says that God's design for marriage is for life. He says no divorce. But he knows relationships in general and marriages in particular are bound to have problems. His desire is us, uh, for us to work it out. To repent when we're wrong. And to forgive each other just as God has forgiven us. And I think we miss the heart of Jesus when we read this passage and we think, okay, what can I get away with here? What's the minimum standard of being married? Peter asks how many times he's got to forgive. Uh, if Jesus would have given him a number, let's say he gave him 77, Peter could look at his, the people in his life and start ticking off the list. Number one, number two, number three. When that person gets to 77, I can write them off. That's, that's, how, that's how we think a lot of times, isn't it? You know the people in your life where you'd love to be able to do that with. The same is true in marriage. You know, if we're looking at marriage from a lens of the minimal standard, we will have a minimal marriage. If we're concerned with learning what requirements are to get out of marriage, uh, we're focused on the wrong thing. What Jesus wants us to focus on in this passage is God's intent. Seeing a spouse or a partner in life, uh, as a partner in life to the glory of God. In practicing grace and forgiveness to one another, just as God has shown grace and forgiveness to us. It's admitting when we're wrong and doing what it takes to make things right. It's not screwing up in the same way a hundred times and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's, I've screwed up. I'm going to go to counseling to get this fixed. I'm going to talk with some accountability partners to get this working right. I'm going to do what it takes. That's repentance. Otherwise, it's just apologizing. It's empty words after a while. 
It's going to mean sacrifice. Death to self where myself is getting in the way of a good marriage. And it means willing the best for each other, not saying, what's the least amount I can do to get the most amount of gain? Jesus' first option in marriage is no divorce. But for those who have been divorced because of their spouse's infidelity, neglect, abandonment, there is hope of remarriage. What about the other extreme? What about those who have gone through a biblically invalid divorce and now are remarried? Are you supposed to get a divorce? Wouldn't that be ridiculous? You see how this teaching isn't a set of rules uh, to get done. This, this is revealing the heart of God for one of the most sacred relationships that we have. What about those who have divorced for invalid reasons who now want to get married again? The foundational question, I believe, is this. According to the witness of Scripture, does God offer forgiveness and restoration to people who are truly repentant about any issue? Not just sorry, not just sad, but those who have admitted their sin, ask God for forgiveness and Jesus for restoration. I've got to say, I, I, I would quit my job today. I could not be a pastor if I did not think the witness of Scripture and the death and resurrection of Jesus clearly tell us that with repentance comes new life. Amen? With true repentance comes new life, new restoration. That is good news. Your story's not over. If you've written a few bad chapters. Now, the disciples are so shocked by Jesus' teaching. His hardcore fidelity in marriage, lifelong marriage, uh, of no any cause divorce. That they say, hey, if the relationship between a husband and his wife is like this, it's better not to get married. In other words, if you can't divorce your wife for any reason, why take the risk of being married at all? Why not just remain celibate? Well, Jesus clearly says that not everyone can handle this option. Not everyone can handle being celibate. Celibacy is a gift granted to some, but not all. It's not a better gift. It's not a worse gift. And within the worldwide church, there's different leanings on this issue. The Roman Catholic position is that... Uh, that celibacy is somehow a higher state of being. I don't see that taught in scripture. Unfortunately, the Protestant position, and typically uh, in most of our churches, is that celibacy is not a good thing to be. And we really don't have a lot of good places for people who are trying to remain celibate, either in temporary singleness or lifelong singleness. More, to that, more on that in a minute. But Jesus is saying that it's not a better or worse state of being. He's just saying that some people have the gift and others don't. Then Jesus starts talking about eunuchs. This is kind of one of the part where I thought it might be best if the kids were gone. I mean, let's just get this out in the open. Eunuchs, of course, are castrated men. In the ancient world, slaves of pagan nations were often castrated so that they could serve in noble houses with no fear of 
muddying up the bloodlines with, no, uh, with noble women. Okay? They were more obedient, more docile. By the time of Jesus, the word eunuch was kind of a colloquial way of speaking about anyone who's non-sexual. So Jesus talks about those who have been born eunuchs, those who have been made eunuchs, and those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Basically, Jesus sees the gift of singleness coming in three ways. There is no biblical warrant for saying that a single non-married person is any less human or fulfilled than a married person. Did you hear that? I think we get that wrong so many times. And uh, it's probably worse for uh, some of our young uh, sisters who still, to this, even in this day and age, get the question, um, maybe from family or friends, uh, are you married yet? Do you have, is there anyone in your life? You know, as if you're inadequate if you don't have that person or you're not on some trajectory to getting hooked up. For those who do not have the gift of celibacy in the long haul, it's good and appropriate to pray for a spouse. But a spouse does not magically make us whole. And you know, I humbly, <laughs> I humbly say that as a person who has a spouse. And I would freely admit that would be a horrible single person. I would be lost. I, I would need to figure out a lot of things about myself. Okay, so there's that caveat. Uh, but I also want to say on the other side, a marriage doesn't make you whole. That you are a fully functional child of God in a state of singleness as well. There is no guarantee for every person to be married happily or to have a family or to have comfort all the time in this world. And yet for people without the gift of celibacy, it is good to ask the Father. And it is good to get your friends and your brothers and sisters in the church to ask the Father on your behalf. I believe that. And I think it's good also, not just to ask for a spouse, but also grace and singleness. Now what about Jesus' three examples of the non-sexed life? First, there are those who are born eunuchs. And remember, he's using this term eunuch as a metaphor. Uh, think about this, just genetically speaking. Palestine doesn't have that many people in it. How many men are actually born without reproductive organs out of the whole? I mean, it's not enough that Jesus is going to make a broad sweeping example out of it. By the first century, when Jesus is speaking, this term eunuch just became people, uh, became a term that, that described people who were non-sexual. So, uh, Jesus is not only talking about men born without reproductive organs, he's also talking about those, those born without maybe the ability to perform through uh, various genetic issues or um, physical uh, defects when they're born. This, this happens in a fallen world. This happens. And many scholars think that maybe this is also could be talking about people who are born or have uh, discovered homosexual leanings. For men and women uh, who have those leanings, they, they might also fall into this category. And I'll just say something as a side, because that's not what this message is about. But I believe we have falsely created two categories for existence in our culture. You're either straight or you're gay. And if a young man finds himself effeminate as a young person and uninterested in the things that boys are interested, 
and interested in maybe things that are girly, or if a young lady finds herself uninterested in playing dolls and wants to, to play football with the boys, quite early on, they're labeled as different. And at least when I was a kid, you're gay. We have very little way of options for deep same-sex friendships and even non-sexual partnerships. We have these false categories of either or. But what could it look like to offer a third way, a third option? I think we've lost something deeply, and I talk about this a lot in our small group and stuff. Uh, We've lost something deep in our culture uh, of deep male friendships. In many cultures, it is still appropriate for men to walk down the street hand in hand, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, to kiss on the cheek. If you did that in this culture, you'd be seen immediately, as the assumption is that you would be a homosexual. And I see far too many of my brothers not have close friendships, not walk tightly with other men, and they're sitting out there floating alone and you might feel like one of them. We should, we should break that stuff down. We have false categories in those areas. Where celibacy seen is a gift, it's a gift to serve and to draw close to God in a way that's unique and unhindered compared to the way a married person, frankly, has to divide their attention. And I think in this issue, especially of same-sex relationships, we have a lot of stigmas and stereotypes to break down, but I do believe that Jesus is showing a better way forward in deep, long-lasting friendships that are not sexual. Second, there are people who are made eunuchs. In the ancient world, if you're captured in war, and you would become a slave most likely for the warring country that captured you, and you would oftentimes be clipped to make you safe to be around. Uh, so some people were made eunuchs through force. Other people are often made non-sexed because of abuse that they have experienced. Some people are made uh, non-sex in a way that they no longer desire to be married or believe in the estate of marriage because of the crap that they've seen as a child. And I have uh, a couple of people I know, uh, no one that you know in this state or anything, but uh, a couple men that I know that seem to get close with women every once in a while and then they self-destruct their relationships. And when you point it out, They don't really believe that a marriage can last because of what they've experienced in their own households. So there are people who have been made uh, through trauma unsexed. And finally, some find that they are given a gift of grace which allows them to remain celibate. Not without struggle, but with an overarching sense that they are able to live the single life and devote more of their attention to kingdom work outside of their own immediate family. Now some have read this too literally. There's the famous story of the great church father, theologian, and exegete origin of Alexandria who reportedly cut himself, made himself a eunuch, uh, as an over-literal translation of this passage. 
But unanimously, uh, among scholars and historians, that is seen as an unwise interpretation of this passage. Uh, We do not serve a God who would have us mutilate the bodies that he created and called very good. Amen? Okay. So, instead, this is a grace of choosing to be celibate. In fact, in the book Common Prayer, there's actually a liturgy, a covenant of prayer, of consecration, for those choosing to live the single celibate life. This is a timely word in a culture that preaches you're either having sex or you're unhappy. That is what our TV, our media, our movies, that is the predominant message. We are bombarded by messages that say to be complete is to be in a sexually gratifying relationship. Within the bounds of a marriage, between a man and a woman, sex is a great gift. It's not the only gift of God. It is not the only ticket to happiness. What are we saying to those who are single if all we talk about is how great sex is and how we're only happy if we're having sex? Sex... Marital status, those are not things that define us. Your personhood is not defined by your sexuality or your marital status. What of those born eunuchs, made eunuchs, or by the grace of God allowed a life of celibacy? I'm saying this uh, as a realization that I think the church, this church, the church, needs to do better at communicating healthier alternatives to relating with each other than our culture does. It's a difficult passage, isn't it? From top to bottom. Jesus has lifted that stone over our hearts. He's allowed the light of his probing truth to uh, expose us Uh, Maybe he's exposing in you hardness of heart or shame from the state that your marriage is in. Maybe it's your own sexual brokenness. For me, it's probably a little bit of all those things. This is not Jesus' way of saying, see, I gotcha. It's not his way of making you feel inadequate is actually a declaration of good news. Jesus is talking about, listen, look what marriage can be. Look what life can be as a celibate single person in Christ. You can have such deeper meaning than defining yourself by who you're with, what activities you do. And there's more good news. In Judaism, eunuchs, whether by choice or by birth or by trauma, were looked down upon as less than whole, as subhuman. It's pretty much the same in our world, isn't it? If you're single, or you're a little bit different sexually, you're looked down, you're ostracized, and even within the church, sometimes especially within the church. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, there's a vision of the kingdom of God. And in this vision... God says that even eunuchs who trust God and keep His commandments will become part of the family of God. This is literally what it says. To them, speaking about eunuchs, I will give my house and within my walls a memorial name 
and a better name than that of the sons and daughters of Israel. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. So what does it mean for us to keep God's covenant? It's to place our faith in the saving grace and lordship of Jesus. In the book of Acts, a eunuch from Ethiopia is reading the Bible. What book is he reading? Isaiah. Yeah. He's reading Isaiah. The Holy Spirit tells Philip to go and talk to this eunuch. The eunuch says, hey, can you help me understand this passage? And Philip, beginning with the scriptures, reveals the good news of Jesus to this eunuch who would be seen by their society as so far from God, so far from being accepted. The eunuch is so overcome by the good news of Jesus, he's, there's some water next to the side of the road, why shouldn't I be baptized now? Jumps off the thing, Philip baptizes him. And he comes to saving grace in Jesus. The grace of Jesus knows no bounds. There is no, nothing that you have done can do that would separate you from the love of Christ when we come to him humbly and repent. Let's pray, because that's really good news. Jesus, even as I have been um, living in this text for the past week or so, I've thought through it, I've uh, practiced these thoughts and these words, tried to smith them the way I think reflect your word. I confess that they, they ring true in my mind, but they're difficult to play out, they're difficult to penetrate my heart. And I suspect, as is always the case, it's true for all of us. On this Pentecost Sunday, uh, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive the good news of Jesus. For the marrieds, Lord, help us to lay down our lives for one another out of a response to what you have first done for us. Not out of some duty or rule to follow, but out of a gracious response to your grace and forgiveness for us. Help us to see the other for the potential they have. Help us to will the best for our spouses. For those who are single and longing to be married, pray, Holy Spirit, for the gift of your comfort and your presence. I pray by your power that our brothers and sisters who are waiting would feel complete feel uh, the power of your adoption into the family of God, that you would give them grace for celibacy in this season. And I pray for our brothers and sisters who are unable to have a complete marriage relationship because of some physical or traumatic event. I pray for healing where healing is part of your plan. I pray for contentment and grace where that's part of your plan. And I pray for those brothers and sisters that they might see an aspect of you that the rest of us don't. That you might gift them in a special way. 
to have a special relationship and closeness with you. And I pray for those who are struggling with their sexuality and their identity for whatever reason. That you would give clarity and hope and comfort. And that you would put the pressure on the church, God, to respond. That you would give us wisdom and grace And I pray for those, Lord, who, who feel like they are called to a lifelong celibacy. And I pray for grace in that area. For your touch, for your mercy. Lord, the constant reminder that celibacy, celibacy is not, again, what defines us. It is not... Uh, just not having sexual relationships, but it is for uh, freeing up time and energy to uh, work towards the things of God and the kingdom of God. Lord, do great things through our diverse body and all the different ways of being sexual, non-sexual, married, and non-married. Amen.